we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And this week, we're going to be playing a panel discussion that we had at a conference, recent conference the center hosted. It was an all-day conference on a variety of topics, but the one we picked out that we thought was good for a podcast was a panel discussing what's likely to happen, what has happened, and what's likely to happen in the next Congress regarding immigration. I was the moderator, but the speakers were George Fishman, who is a senior legal fellow here at the center and a longtime Hill staffer, Rosemary Jenks, who is head of government relations, basically lobbying for Numbers USA, which is one of the leading citizen action groups on immigration. And then R.J. Hellman, who is head of government relations for the Federation for American Immigration Reform Affair, which is the other big citizen action group. And all of them have extensive experience on the Hill. Rosemary and R.J. are still working there. George is here at the center now. And I think it was a pretty interesting discussion. Each of them gave some thoughts of their own, and then there was some back and forth. There'll be some talking over each other, that sort of thing. It's an actual panel discussion. But listen in, and I think you'll be interested. Everyone, look up at this panel. There's one person on this panel who, more than anyone else in the country, prevented mass amnesties from getting enacted in the few decades I was in Congress. And surprised it wasn't me. (laughs) <laughs> it, it was the uh, person sitting next to me, Rosemary Jenks. And so I just wanted to, uh, just wanted to mention that. trying to make me feel bad for the amnesty comment. <laughs> um, I guess one of the first things I learned in Congress was not everyone in Congress has a sense of humor. We, After President Obama's DHS came up with this new detention standards for aliens and immigration detention, which we thought were a bit too, you know, popcorn machines and soccer fields and all this stuff. We scheduled a hearing on it, and I decided to title the hearing Holiday on Ice. And <laughs> some people just didn't didn't find the humor in that. I, I, I have to deal with this. He sends stuff to me with headlines that I'm like, George, I can't publish this. What are you talking about? So I know the feeling. If I knew when I started immigration on the Hill in 1995 how hard it was to get immigration legislation enacted, I would have done a little thinking. When we were advocating for my then boss, Bob Goodlatte's immigration legislation in 2018, which really would have been immigration reform legislation, one of the arguments I made to Republican staff members on the Hill was, you know, it's 2018, the last really major immigration legislation I was involved in getting enacted was 2005, 2006, maybe. And so my wife sometimes asked me, George, what have you been doing all these years? So throw me me a bone, guys. 
it was worth a shot. In the end, it didn't work. And I guess let me talk a little bit about why it didn't work and just sort of the history of why, how immigration legislation got enacted and more often didn't get enacted in the years I was there. You know, and I should note that I had nothing to do with the 52 Act. I was not even born yet then, despite certain impressions to the contrary. One thing I noticed over the years was how it became a totally partisan issue. Back when I started 95, 96, we got the infamous 96 immigration legislation, Lamar Smith's immigration legislation, Alan Simpson's immigration legislation that provided almost all the enforcement powers that could be used now by a president who wanted to use them, received a majority of Democratic votes in one of its versions on the House floor, including people like Dick Durbin voting for it. And one of my happiest moments at DHS, I was there for a few years, was having to respond to a a letter by a number of senators, including Dick Durbin, and being able to mention in in that response Oh, and, you know, this was certainly, remember this bipartisan bill, which, of course, is much hated now by people who don't want to enforce the immigration law. It was so bipartisan. You know, Mr. Durbin, remember, even you voted for it. And that was a fun thing to do. But on final passage, 40 percent of Democrats in the House voted for it. Ten years later, 2005, Mr. Sensenbrenner's immigration legislation went up past the House. 18 percent of Democrats voted for it. We got to Mr. Goodlatte's bill 2018, zero, not one Democrat in the House voted for it. So that's one thing which makes it more difficult is the complete elimination of any support for immigration control among Democrats in the House. Now, every vote has to come from Republicans, obviously making a more difficult job. I'm very encouraged by what I hear about should the Republicans take control after the election, the priority that the presumed leadership will will give to immigration. But let me just sketch out a few of the ways in the past how Republican leadership stood in the way of getting things enacted. And there's sort of four methods that I sort of jotted down in my head. The first one was simply not allowing legislation to be voted on in the floor. I remember working for Lamar Smith and Elton Gallagher in uh, you know 2011, 2012, mandatory verified legislation. They pleaded to be able to get that bill to the House floor. Were never allowed to get the bill to the House floor. Then under Mr. Goodlatte, uh, first Trey Gowdy and then Rural Labrador, major immigration enforcement legislation, the, the Safe Act, then to become the Davis Oliver Act, and in fact President Trump invited the widows of the slain police officers, Davis and Oliver, to the State of the Union one year, couldn't get the bill to the House floor. So obviously you don't have any chance if you get a bill through the committee, but it's not allowed on the House floor. That's obviously an impediment. Second method, and this happened with Mr. Goodlatte's bill in 2018, give multiple alternatives. If there's one bill on the floor, members who might have some issues with some of it but want to be able to vote for immigration enforcement, immigration reform, they're going to vote for it. So what do you do? Have two bills out there. Let people who otherwise would have voted for the bill vote for an alternative to be able to say they voted for immigration enforcement, and then they don't have to vote for the bill. That happened with Mr. Goodlatte's bill, which narrowly was defeated in the House of Representatives. 
2018. But if all the Republicans who voted against that bill, but voted for the weaker substitute to come right after it, if they had all voted for it too, it would have passed the House. So that's just another example. Another example is support behind the scenes negotiations that no one really knows about to come up with a, you know, quote unquote, bipartisan compromise. And if it's reached, spring it on the House floor. And apparently uh, in 2014, that was about to happen. Uh, and it was a, uh, this secretive compromise by the gang of, I forget how many, was going to go to the House floor. And then inconveniently, Eric Cantor lost his primary. And... Uh, <laughs> All I'm saying is that until that moment, who knows what would have happened. And finally, there's the endless meetings to try to achieve consensus among all the factions or the, the people with different points of view in the party. And sometimes those meetings are very advantageous to me. I remember, I think it was 2005 when the so-called unity meetings were put together to, to bring Republicans together on one approach to immigration. And in the meetings, all the, this was in the evening, all the members would sit around a table and get a catered dinner and whatever, and the staff would sit at these chairs behind hand. And bless his heart, my boss then, Lamar Smith, always saved his dessert for me and gave it to me <laughs> uh, after dinner. And um, that was probably the most productive thing in my mind that came out of those, um, uh, <laughs> out of those meetings. And then uh, in 2018, before we got uh, Mr. Goodlatte's bill to the House floor, Speaker Paul Ryan put together another group of Republicans from Lincoln diaz Villar to Will Hurd to, uh, you know, Mr. Sensenbrenner and Mr. Goodlatte, et cetera, to come up to have endless meetings, which obviously never resulted in anything, but just a way to, you know, string things along. So did, did Ryan give you his dessert? Well, Actually, one thing I should mention, Mark, about Paul Ryan is Lamar Smith's immigration bill that got to the floor in 1996 included major reforms to legal immigration system to end chain migration, things of that nature. There was an amendment on the floor to strip those provisions from the bill. It was successful, and those provisions were stripped. One of the leading advocates for stripping those provisions was a then young congressional staffer working for Congressman Sam Brownback named Paul Ryan. And uh, there's actually a very interesting article written about his efforts in Wired magazine years ago. It was titled, uh, Do You Know the Way to Ban Jose? That was the title of the Wired, um, uh, the Wired article. In any event, when I was working for Mr. Goodlatte, we went into a meeting on some immigration issue with Mr. Ryan, who was then either speaker or head of the Ways and Means Committee. I'm, I'm trying to remember. And Paul Ryan came up to me and said, George, do you remember when we debated that issue back in 96? And I I just was like a deer in, a head, in the headlights because I have no recollection of that. But apparently, I, you know, we two staffers debated before the Republican Study Committee on, you know, those reforms. And Mr. Goodlatte then asked Mr. Ryan, well, so, you know, Paul, uh, who won that debate? And Paul just smiled, looked at me and said, well, you know, we won, didn't we? Meaning stripping the amendment out of the bill. So in any event, I don't think Paul Ryan will, would ever save me any desserts. But the two biggest successes legislation-wise while I was there 
Of course, in 1996, Lamar Smith and Alan Simpson's Legal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act, right after we took control of the House after the 94 elections. And my recollection is the only reason leadership then let that bill get to the floor and surprisingly get enacted, one was the California Republicans sent a letter to leadership saying, if you don't do this, we're going to lose our elections the next election. You have to do this for our electoral sake. And that had a big impact. The other impact was the work of uh, Barbara Jordan and her immigration commission. And her gravitas got President Clinton to be supportive. And had she not prematurely passed away in the midst of it, those legal immigration reforms might have gotten through because once she passed away, the attitudes of Clinton administration changed dramatically. But had it not been for that pressure of the California Republicans, might never have gotten to the floor. The second was an art author and Brian Zimmer are here, the Mr. Centrumenter's Real ID Act, uh, which they were very much, you know, it wouldn't have happened without them. Not you know, about Tom Tancredo either. Well, I was going to mention that. Um, you know, this was the driver's license provisions, the the asylum reform provisions, the the deporting alien terrorist provisions. They were basically all put into the intelligence reform bill the year prior in 2004, implementing the recommendations of the 9-11 Commission that passed the House. We went to conference with the Senate and the Senate apparently delegated Joe Lieberman complete power to dictate the results of that conference. And as Art will remember, Joe Lieberman gave, gave complete power to a staffer named Kevin Landy to determine the outcome of those negotiations. And not surprisingly, all the major immigration provisions we had gotten in the House version did not survive. And at that point in time, there's a little known rule, which I believe is still there on the House Republican rule. And correct me if I'm wrong, Rosemary, but if 50 members sign this, they can demand a meeting of the entire Republican conference. Before and, legislation comes to the Yeah, floor. yeah. And Tom Tancredo, based on, and also Duncan Hunter, based on some national security issues, like maybe I'm wrong about that, got the signatures to this letter, forced the Republican conference meeting on the evisceration of the House immigration provisions in the uh, intelligence reform bill. And the result of that meeting eventually was a promise by Republican leadership to Chairman Sensenbrenner that the first thing next year, new Congress in 2005, we're going to jam those provisions with which the Senate struck out into the first must pass legislation in 2005. We promise you that's going to happen. I personally was a bit dubious as to whether that was that, that actually was going to happen. Believe it or not, it happened. And it was put on to the, I think, this the Iraq tsunami relief uh, appropriations Iraq bill. Supplemental. Yeah. Iraq and also tsunami. I think that was the Sri Lankan. I don't know. Anyway, uh, it was put on that, to, obviously, to the outrage of the Senate, to Democrats, that we would you know, take advantage of this appropriations bill to put all these provisions in. Well, guess what? They all got enacted. And uh, well, guess what? They still haven't been implemented. <laughs> That's another. Uh, so, yeah, that's how the two biggest enacted changes in immigration law happened uh, while I was there. And and so just to, to give a sense of the obstacles and the opportunities that we'll face should the Republicans 
take control of the House. As I mentioned, you know, I am very encouraged by what I hear. And at that point, I think I should turn my head to Rosemary and to RJ. Thank you, uh, George. So now George has told us how the Republican leadership screwed us in the past. So Rosemary and RJ will now talk about the dangers of Republican leadership screwing us in the future. Rosemary, why don't you go first? So actually, I think we're a little bit more optimistic than we have been in the past. But so let's look at this from 50,000 feet. We have basically three options for the next Congress. We can have the Democrats still controlling both chambers and the White House, in which case we'll be lucky if we only get, you know, 4.2 or so million more illegal alien apprehensions at the southern border, the chaos continues. Or if Republicans take the House and Democrats keep the Senate and Biden obviously has the White or Democrats have the White House, I guess I should say, then we have an opportunity in the House to pass legislation, good legislation with Republican support. Um, but it's never going to be signed into law. It's not going to get through the Senate. It's not going to be signed by the Biden administration. If Republicans take the House and the Senate, then potentially, despite a lot of squishy Republicans in the Senate, we could get decent legislation through the House, through the Senate to Biden's desk, at which point, if it's good legislation, he would veto it. I mean, his handlers would tell him to veto it. So we're not going to get good reform legislation signed into law in the next two years. We're just not. That doesn't mean that all is hopeless, though, because anytime you can get a chamber of of Congress to vote on good legislation, you move a step ahead because you've got them on the record. You've got Republicans voting yes so that the following Congress, they can't come back and say, well, I don't support that. Well, you voted for it, so you can vote for it again or else. You also put the Democrats on record so that when the next election comes up, their voters can see, well, wait a minute now, Republicans had a plan to actually end the chaos at the border and Democrats said no. So why would I vote for that? The chaos continues. So each time you get to a new election, there's a starker difference. The other thing is that there's a lot that Republicans can do through the appropriations process and through oversight. You know, I fully expect that in the early days of the next Congress, if Republicans take the House, that there will be an effort to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas. You know, depending on whether or not the Republicans have control of the Senate, that will determine what happens from there. But we also have to be careful and creative with how we use the appropriations process, because if Republicans give money for 100,000 more detention beds to ICE, ICE isn't going to fill those beds. So you're just throwing money out the window. So we have to really be creative and say, okay, so if you give 100,000 detention beds and Mayorkas doesn't keep 80% of them full all the time, then he loses his travel and conference money or something, you know, something that, that will affect him directly. So there are a lot of things like that that can be done that used to be done back in the day. I mean, we used to have a great time with appropriations back in the day, but it hasn't been done because amendments haven't been allowed for the last 15 years. Um, I want to say one other thing that is not quite related before I turn it over to RJ to talk about what we're really hopeful about. But I was triggered two days ago, three days ago now by an article in Roll Call that Grant's laughing. This article was about what are called 
recapturing unused visas. This makes my head explode. There are no unused visas. Our system does not allow for unused visas. And the article correctly explained that any family-based visas that are unissued in one fiscal year, they roll over to the employment-based visa side for the following fiscal year. But then it said, and any unused employment-based visas expire. Those visas do not expire. That is absolutely 100% false. Any unused employment-based visas roll over into the family side where they get lost because the numbers of relatives are so huge. They still get used. They still roll over. There are no unused visas. So for any staffers in here, if your bosses start talking about recapturing unused visas, send them to me, please. Sorry. No, you're good. No, And I want to take a step back. Great stuff uh, from Rosemary there. We've all been working together a good bit, but I kind of want to take a step back and discuss kind of a situation that led to, I think, a pretty historic form of uh, coalition advocacy that accomplished a lot uh, out the gate with that commitment to America that rolled out with Republican leadership yesterday, um, actually. So we didn't catch word. We, we knew that McCarthy, and again, McCarthy has evolved on the immigration issue. He's one of the type of guys who you know, feels whatever ways the wind blowing. And in some instances that could work in our favor. He's got a decent staff. Scalise's office is pretty good on the issue as well. But, you know, he tapped John Katko, who's as bad as it gets on the immigration issue, who is the current household land security chairman. We're hoping there's an upgrade. It isn't a ranking member, excuse me, but we're hoping there's an upgrade when they take back the majority. And it isn't Dan Crenshaw, it's Mark Green would be very ideal. But we were very afraid when he was starting to advocate for the only solutions for the border crisis or under homeland security jurisdiction. We know that's all not true. You need to make statutory changes and have judiciary involved. All the stuff he wanted to do, he rolled out an introductory bill last year that we were afraid was going to make up the entire task force framework. It would be the solutions that Republicans are running on. And that's what they do right out the gate. And it just was a bunch of window dressing. Okay. It was, you know, technology down at the border, drones, increased staffing, more processing facilities that it continues to let everybody in the country under the guise of legality. It's stuff that I think Democrats, after getting rebuked strongly in the election, would be like, okay, well, let's pretend this is a big compromise and we'll get a little amnesty t- attached to it and we'll sign it in the law and then we can keep this flow coming into the country. So when we kind of caught wind of that, we all formed, I think, pretty much the largest immigration coalition ever, FAIR, Numbers, Heritage, AFPI, Center for Renewing America, Border Patrol Union, everybody under the sun and CIS was involved. I know you guys didn't want to get too much in the advocacy front as more of a think tank, but you know we appreciated the assistance on what our kind of demands were. And again, our demands were very strong. I'm not going to get into every single one, but again, a lot of statutory changes, end catch and release, close the loopholes, mandatory you verify, everything outside of just Border Patrol resources. And fortunately, you know, we had a meeting in the Capitol and and, that Senate and House Judiciary was looped in and, and now they are part of that process. So fortunately, in late July, the task force framework was rolled out. I'd say it pretty much checked 80 percent of our boxes or so. So it was a great step in, in the direction of actual needed changes to the system. And I think Catco was biting his tongue a little bit, but he's on the way out the door. So who cares? One thing I think an issue we raised with them as well that kind of irked me a little bit, too, is they rolled out this task force framework that you think they're going to go on August recess touting we have actual solutions. Well, they put it in their back pocket. And one thing I think we were raising and we raised it on the call when they finally unveiled it to us is, listen, you guys can go out there on Twitter and keep saying Biden sucks on immigration. Here are the border numbers. Well, what are you going to do about it? 
You know, Republicans need to have a, a strong border security solution of sorts on the ballot. Now, they rolled out, you know, on Thursday and, and yesterday at a town hall in Pittsburgh. I think they were to do it Monday, but I think the Queen stepped in. It's a very broad, high level, like two bullet part of a nation that's safe. And the first thing that it does is check the box on CatCo's front, the safe things, you know, border patrol resources, drones, you know, uh, you know, more personnel. But on the second front, it was pretty strong. They included end catch and release loopholes, checking legal status for employment. One thing we're trying to do is make sure whenever we mention that we're saying mandatory verify, we don't want some watered down thing loaded with exemptions. And number three is ending uh, taxpayer benefits to illegal aliens. I think they pulled on it. It's pretty well. But we have an assurance, you know, from leadership that everything in the task force framework still stands. They just wanted something a little bit more high level to run on that resembles what propelled that wave than when Newt did the contract uh, with America. But we're pretty encouraged of what's going to happen. We don't want to get into too much details, I guess, of what the text would contain or what we're doing, you know, as much behind the scenes. But I think we've made it clear that, you know, we understand, you know, we, we don't want Republicans to think all we have to do is pass a broad messaging type bill out the gate. They need to do, you know, three things. And Rosemary hit on them earlier. It's one, you pass a strong border security bill out the gate. Number two, aggressive oversight, things like impeaching Mayorkas. And then three is properly control the purse strings. If you don't go down those two other points, your popularity is going to end up like the Democrats currently have in six months. You wouldn't, you haven't done a darn thing. So you have to go aggressive out the gate. And lastly, before I kind of turn it over and open up the conversation, one thing that we're going to be so challenged with out the gate is with this new wave of Republican members coming in and the open borders lobby getting to them and them having poor staffing. I want to give an example of that. You know, Myra Flores, who was elected in that Texas district, her, her husband's a border patrol officer. She staffed up, I think, very poorly. If you look at her Twitter account right out the gate. She's just meeting with the documented dreamers and things like that. One example, too, they kind of reached out for us. Well, how can we get political cover, you know, show we're addressing the crisis? And we looped them in on a bill that one of their colleagues was drafting to kind of expand some Title 42-esque authority with a you know criteria of when the Border Patrol crisis hits a certain point, there's political strife in a country abroad. They go, OK, well, it sounds good. We just have some edits. And I go, well, respectfully, what are the edits? They wanted to make guest workers exempt from that authority. So you could have a pandemic in a country abroad and they don't want any travel or any immigration for there unless you're a cheap foreign labor, then come on in. So it just shows the people that they're hiring and, and who's getting to them early. So we're going to have to educate these members on the importance of true immigration reform and how you actually deliver. So we'll be hitting the ground running very hard on that front uh, right out the gate. Can I just add to that before we go back? Sure. To Mark, yeah, go, go ahead. Waiting? Just because I, this all sounds kind of amorphous that, you know, we're up here saying, well, we have some hope that leadership is going to do something good. It's more specific than that. And and I think we can say that on each step, when the task force report was released and when the commitment to America was released, we actually got called in beforehand by leadership staff to make sure we were in the loop, that we understood what was going on and that they were still fully committed to the list of you know bullet points we gave them. But because, you know, whatever that's worth, we decided that we also needed to meet with the people who would actually be drafting this legislation. So, you know, we've we've met with Jim Jordan. We've met with Tom McClintock. Jordan will be the, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee if Republicans take control. And Tom McClintock will be the chairman of the Immigration Subcommittee if they take control. Yeah. As strong as it and, gets. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have... 100% faith. And based on our meetings, I mean, these guys are fired up. 
McClintock, especially to my surprise, you know, he's usually a little bit grumpy and whatever, but he was fired up. So, you know, we know who's going to be drafting the legislation. We trust who's going to be drafting the legislation. We're working directly with them. And as we've said, this is specifically we the coalition that we're part of decided specifically to, to focus on border security because that's what Republicans are going to be focused on. That's what most Americans are focused on right now because of the sheer chaos at the border. So this is, as far as we're concerned, a starting point. And the more we can get these Republicans bought into this, the better off we'll be in the end. Is it a waiting game? Yes. But here we are. I should just mention that when the task force recommendations came out publicly and I read them, I was stunned in a good way. Mm -hmm. I never in a million years thought a leadership anointed task force would have such real immigration reform provisions that endorsed. I I, I never expected that. So, um, you know, again, I was stunned in a very good way. That's it for this episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. If you're listening to this on Thursday when we post it, we will be having a panel discussion at the same time on a completely different topic on the immigration and migration consequences of the Ukraine war. And so if you could tune into that right now, if you want to, it's on our website at cis.org. It's streaming at Facebook and Twitter for you to listen or watch at our website. For now, that is it for this episode. My name is Mark Krikorian, and I hope you will tune in in the future. And the best way to do that is to subscribe. We are on all the usual podcast platforms, it's parsing immigration policy. And if you have any thoughts, comments, criticisms, what have you, either post them there or feel free just to message me at Twitter. My Twitter handle is Mark S, as in Stephen, Mark S. Krikorian. Until next week, thanks for tuning in. <laughs>